a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 45, Star Wars, issue number 9, cover date March 1978. Hello, everybody. This is Ben, Ben Avery, and I'm here because I have just gone on a journey through time. I have gone back in time to a spinner rack in 1977 to buy some comics that are cover dated of March 1978. The release dates of the comics we're looking at for this next series of segments is from actually December. And so some of these might have actually ended up being Christmas gifts. Uh, although not John Carter, Warlord of Mars. That came out two days after Christmas. But uh, here's what we're doing. We are walking through Marvel's licensed science fiction comics. We're using Star Wars as our anchor. We'll always start with Star Wars whenever we start a new month, a new cover date month. And this month, there's only five books, really. So here's how we do this. I have a box. Uh, actually, I used to pull these out of a short, long box. And I know, I know. It's not a short, long box. I guess it's just a short box or something. Uh, for some reason, that's just the word that's stuck in my head when I talk about the shorter version of the comic book long box, a short long box. Uh, but I don't have that. Well, I, I still have them. There's there's two short long boxes that have my my collection here that we're reading from. But I've actually moved over and I, I have put I have a, a wooden Star Wars box that has actually artwork from Star Wars comics. Got it at a craft store. Uh, I actually got it uh, because of a heads up that I got from Shag Matthews, the Irredeemable Shag from the Firewater podcast. And that has the comics that I'm wanting to read in the near future. So there's some Secret Wars 2 comics in there for that event series that we're doing for a comic book time machine. There's uh, my Godzilla Omnibus, because that goes along with, with this series. There's my Star Wars Omnibus Volume 1 that I'm reading from right now for this series. There are about 10 bags from this series that I have assembled. And then there's some other random series in there that, um, you know, 20-issue run of a comic series from the 80s that I want to read in the near future, that kind of thing. And that way, they're just all easily accessible to me, and they're in a kind of cool box. And I really... I'm very thankful to Shag, actually, for, for posting a picture of this uh, thing that he got. So anyway, in that box, along with the Godzilla Omnibus and the Star Wars Omnibus, there are, like I said, these poly bags. And inside the poly bags are comics that I have put in month by month and with according to the cover date. And inside, along with those issues, are, is a slip of paper. And on that slip of paper is everything that I need to read to do the March 19, well, in this case, the March 1978 cover date. And so what I do, I pull out the bag 
and I don't know what's coming up. I, I mean, I assembled these bags, but it's been so long now since I've assembled this. I don't remember when things are coming. I know that things are coming. I forget maybe that I might have put in, well, for example, Human Fly. I think I forgot that that was coming. And so it was a nice little surprise. Uh, same with Man from Atlantis. I didn't realize it was coming as soon as it did. You know, that that kind of thing. Uh, First Men in the Moon, when when that hit, I was like, oh, great. A little, you know, one-off little thing. And so as we get further in, it's going to be even more like that, where all of a sudden a series will pop up, maybe even that I completely forgot about. But on the slip of paper, it says what the, the titles of the books are, the issues, and this way, you know, whatever's in the bag is on the slip. But then I also know which issue to turn to in the Godzilla omnibus, the Star Wars omnibus, or if I need to skip, you know, maybe maybe Godzilla didn't publish anything that month. And so it wouldn't be on this slip of paper. And so I have done that. I have pulled out the bag for the cover date, March 1978. The release date for all of these is December, like I said, 1977. And there's only five. And I was a little surprised, actually, and even a little bit disappointed that there wasn't any kind of, you know, weird one-off, like Crazy Magazine or, uh, you know, First Men in the Moon. You know, even though, even when I don't like something, I enjoy discovering that thing. You know, it's it's kind of, I don't know, there's just something about it that go, goes back to the... the uh, the blind bags uh, that I've done for the comic book time machines main feed. Uh, it just, I guess I like the new and the surprise and, and maybe that's just something I need to look at myself and, and learn from this discovery. What does it mean that I have this quirk of personality and how can I adjust to be a better person now that I understand this about myself? But in the meantime, I'm going to read some comics because that's what this is for. So here are the five March 1978 Marvel licensed books that Marvel put out, not including Conan or, or Tarzan, because I you know, long ago explained why I wasn't going to be touching them. Uh, here's here's what they, what they are in order of release date, not necessarily in order of coverage. I'm not that with anal retentive, I guess, where I'm going to go in release date. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to always start with Star Wars. And most of the time I'm going to end with John Carter because I know I'm going to start with something that I mean, Star Wars is the reason I'm even doing this. And John Carter, man, so far has just been incredible. And I hope it just keeps up that that level of quality. Uh, but in the order of release that it actually came out, here are the five books I'll be covering in the next few segments of this podcast. First, December 6, 1977, Human Fly number seven hit the stands. Human, or not Human Fly, Human Fly number seven hit the stands, and Godzilla number eight hit the stands. And just a little teaser for Human Fly that cover, if it delivers, I will be happy. Now, they haven't delivered. You know, they promised me Human Fly fighting sharks. And I kind of got it, but not the way I really wanted it. Come on. But this one has Human Fly fighting a giant grizzly bear. Yes, Human Fly has to fight the bear. And I could not be more excited because I'm really trying not to be more excited because Human Fly has not really uh, lived up to this. The standard of... of uh, of enjoyment for me. I mean, there's standards of quality and there's standards of fun. And you know, there's so bad it's good. And then there's so bad that it's just bad. And then there's just mediocre. 
And, you know, so far, Human Fly, it's flirted with being so bad it's bad. But this one, there might be some... I'm not going to get my hopes up. I am not an optimist. And so I don't know why I'm actually saying, eh, it might be good this time. Because I'm judging a book by its cover, I guess. Again, a personality quirk I need to learn from. I do judge books by their cover. And I am frequently disappointed. There's something there. Then on uh, December uh, 13th of 1977, Star Wars number nine came out. And that's continuing that brand new storyline that uh, Roy Thomas created uh, with George Lucas's approval. Although we'll find out, well, we'll find out in coming months um, (laughs) that George Lucas didn't necessarily remain approving of this storyline. December 20th, 1977, we have Man from Atlantis number two. And then December 27th, 1977, we have John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number 10. And so these are the five issues that we'll be covering in the next few segments from this podcast. And I think the order I'm going to take things in will be kind of really to soften the blow for me. I'm going to start with Star Wars, which I always do. But then I think from Star Wars, we'll go into Man from Atlantis, just because I don't know what to expect from that from man from Atlantis will go to human fly. And then that will give me some, you know, Godzilla and John Carter, you know, if human fly isn't great, which let's face it, hasn't been, um, then I'll have, I'll be able to wash, uh, you know, rinse the mouth out, so to speak with little Godzilla and John Carter and always trying then to end on a high note. So I'm going to go ahead right now and, get started with uh, my analysis and impressions and feelings and all that about Star Wars issue number nine. I'm going to call this first segment of the March 1978 cover date coverage uh, rising above. And that's because uh, I was hoping that they would be able to rise above just a transplant of Star Wars characters and sci-fi characters and and sci-fi tropes onto Seven Samurai, onto Magnificent Seven. I mean, this is really, uh, you know, Star Wars itself does have a lot of influences in samurai movies. Hidden Fortress is a big influence behind the original Star Wars movie. And I think Roy Thomas even has said that because of that, he then was looking at, okay, well, what about Seven Samurai or Magnificent Seven, which would have been uh, more recent and also more American. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the Magnificent Seven story is a story that is, to be quite honest, it's, it's, you, you've seen it. You've seen it. And maybe you didn't even know you've seen it, but when you're looking for it, you start to recognize it. And and here it's it's very, very evident, very, very evident. Basically, you have a powerful bad guy who is threatening and taking regularly from a weak uh, victim. That weak victim, village of people, sends someone out to go and bring back heroes, to bring back warriors who can stand up for them. And defend them, and they end up finding a motley crew of about seven people to come and to help them to fend off 
the bad guys. And, you know, that's the Magnificent Seven, which is one of the best examples out there. That's, you know, Seven Samurai, which, you know, was the movie that Magnificent Seven, Magnificent Seven was a Western, and it took its influence from the Samurai movie, Seven Samurai. So Roy Thomas says, well, if, if George could do it with uh, Hidden Fortress, I can do it with Seven Samurai, or more specifically, <laughs> uh, The Magnificent Seven. Because, I mean, he does take these last few issues, he's had just beat for beat things from Seven, uh, The Magnificent Seven. So my question was, well, can this rise above that and not just be an utter ripoff and become its own thing? And that's why, you know, rise above, there's a double meaning as far as rising. Uh, when we get to the end of this, we'll find out if that double meaning includes, you know, actual success in rising above. But uh, issue number nine was called Showdown on a Wasteland World. Howard Chaikin is still uh, being listed as an illustrator. You have Tom Palmer as well, though, who is listed as the illustrator. Uh, you have Roy Thomas as writer-editor. You have Tom Palmer as the colorist, John Costanza as the letterer, Archer Goodwin as the consulting editor. And then it says, I mean, it continues on the cover. It says, at last, beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy. And then inside, Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy of all, continuing the saga begun in the film by George Lucas, released by 20th Century Fox. The story in question is actually entitled Showdown on a Wasteland World. And the cover shows us Han Solo and... Chewbacca and Jackson the rabbit and they're shooting at uh, raiders who are coming down cloud riders it says keep firing Chewie all of you it's, it's do or die because here come the cloud riders and <laughs> Jackson the rabbit says yeah and it looks like it's gonna be die <laughs> ever the optimist the story itself uh, you know it, it's brisk it's short I mean, we're talking about 1970s era stories. I mean, the cover price here is only 35 cents, but we're only getting, um, I think, 16 pages of story, maybe 17 pages of story. And you have uh, Han Solo and his band of people. I'm going to go ahead and, and read the descriptions. Um, the guys I signed up, I signed on to help us. I must have been chewing loon weed. <laughs> Don Juan Quixote, crazy old coot. He thinks he's the last of the Jedi Knights. Jackson, a six-foot rabbit who gnaws on ham bones instead of carrots. Hedgie, one of the few remaining spiners. Well, he throws a mean quill, at least. And Amaza, well, I've seen her shoot the antenna off a giant, spelled J-I-A-N-T, at 600 yards. Don't know what possessed me to bring Jim, who wants me to call him the Starkiller Kid, unless it's because he's a native. Besides, his robot, Effie, might be useful to us. So that's uh, our six helpers. And, you know, then we have Han Solo and Chewie. And they're all riding into town on Banthas. Uh, you know, kind of keeping that Western motif, I guess. Although it's just a little weird, you know, to see them riding on these huge hairy beasts. But it's actually, there's a, there's a cool element. And then you have our first battle scene, which is uh, not against the Raiders. The villagers have asked for help against the the raiders who are coming and stealing their crops and their young women. Uh, but when they ride up to the village and they see the crops, they see these monsters 
that have kind of human faces with bug eyes and beaks for noses and kind of a mane of feathers. And and then they have wings and, and talons and everything like that. They're kind of like almost harpies, but maybe a male version of the harpy. And these things are attacking the crops and they're fighting them off. And Don Juan, he gets out his lightsaber and uses that. And Effie, the robot, fights off uh, some of these these guys. And you get a you get to see all of them at work. Um, Amaza, you know, she's she's a she's got two pistols and she's shooting and Jackson's got two and, and they're all doing pretty good. They're working well, if not as a team, they're definitely working well. But then, of course, we have the love interest. As Han Solo watches, there's a woman running out of the crops who's scantily clad. And she's about to get taken by one of these beasts. And Han Solo rides into the rescue on his bantha. I mean, these banthas, you know, just to picture them, they put costumes on an elephant's body. And, you know, so it has that big bulky body and then they have these ginormous mouths uh they're very very scruffy and so you can't really see their eyes and they have these gigantic uh horns like a a goat's horn or you know a ram's horn rather and it's just kind of goofy but at the same time i don't know i kind of like it so they're they chase off those creatures the creatures fly away and Han Solo has a moment with the girl only to find out that the girl is actually the daughter of the guy who who's kind of the the spokesperson for the village. And she's also the granddaughter of a crazy old coot who he says, we don't need your help because I saw something. I saw something in the mountain years ago and I'm going to I'm going to get it. And that's that's a little foreshadowing. but um to keep with uh, Han Solo and them, the Raiders do come and we, now we jump right into another battle. They try to get the village ready, but the Raiders, including uh Sergi X is, is the guy, uh, the leader of the Raiders. And it's not looking good. In fact, um, a couple of them fall. A couple of them are destroyed. Well, one is destroyed. The, the robot Effie, uh, Don Juan Quixote, gets uh, blasted in the back after doing a a nice Jedi move. He may not have the force, but he definitely knows how to use his lightsaber. But he gets shot in the back, and the battle is not going well until... And full spoilers. Full spoilers. I mean, this is an old, old comic, and if you're planning to read it, uh, if you're going to read it in the omnibus, it's going to get spoiled for you anyway because of the way the page turns come out. But truthfully, you know, if you, if you have any plans to read it, read it now and then continue listening to the coverage here. Uh, but because that old man, he is actually <laughs> like while they're fighting, he's just out there chanting with his arms raised and everything like that. And the battle's not looking good, but then they find out what the old man is doing. And that final page is a splash page of this giant lizard monster just bursting up from the earth, just erupting from the sides of the the cliffs, the mountains there. And suddenly the battle is a different battle. And yes, the monster rises from the earth. And as he does, he also brings up with it 
frankly, it brings up with it uh, element of storytelling that I'm kind of excited about. This is not just going to be a Seven Samurai ripoff. This is going to give us something, you know, a little different. There's at least a twist to it. Now, it's still, yes, it is still going to be a ripoff of the Seven Samurai, but it's a nice twist. Now, we also find out that Luke is out looking for a new place for a new rebel base. They've lost communication with Luke, and so Princess Leia is going to uh, rush out and try and find him because he was just checking in to say that he might have found a good place for the base, and then he sees something, and communications get cut off, and so she's coming after him. So there's that subplot there. But the main plot here is the Han Solo adventure, and, and as he's... Um, I mean, it just... I'm, I'm excited, you know. This is the kind of thing that, you know, it's that... I guess that little inner inner child uh who loves godzilla you know and to see the the monster rise from the earth and and then han solo is going to have to take care of this with his pals now i don't know what's going to happen with don juan quixote i don't know if he's going to survive uh jackson the the rabbit i think is going to and um i have a feeling that our farm boy who reminds han solo of luke is also going to be you know one of the survivors of this story but I, I do wonder how many of these characters we're going to come back to later on. So I'm just trying to figure out if I even want to see them again. And, and honestly, of them, Don Juan Quixote is the one who kind of interests me the most. Just this deluded guy who thinks he's a Jedi when there are no more Jedi. I mean, they've been destroyed. It clearly was told to us in the first movie. They're gone. And, except for Obi-Wan Kenobi. So... I, I would like to know more of his story. I don't know if I'll be able to get more of his story. Uh, Hedgie, the porcupine guy with a cape, I'm not interested in him at all. Amaza, I am a little bit interested in. She and Han Solo seem to have some sort of history. She's got some good one-liners, and it's kind of fun. Tim, don't care about, but maybe if I was a kid, I would care more about him. But anyway, the story itself is decent. There is some questionable storytelling and i think a lot of that comes down to some of the trouble they were having with howard chaykin i am not sure what the working relationship was here for this particular issue i do know howard chaykin is not going to be much longer on the series i know his name will not be on here much longer uh and i know roy thomas will not be around much longer when i get to the issue where he disappears from the credits i'm going to pull out one of those interviews that I have read uh, from him where he does talk about being let go from the series. And I'm pretty sure this story arc is the story arc that he was let go because of. Um, so here there's, there's some moments where we're told things that we should be shown. And there's some moments where it's just kind of awkward where they tell us something that they should be showing us, but then what they are showing us doesn't really match what they're telling us. And, it, it's not the greatest as far as especially this twist at the end where you find out what the old man is doing. You don't even know that the old man is doing something until you get to the second to last page. And so that's where, you know, it's not if I was going to give this a grade, you know, how many stars out of out of five, I would probably give this, uh, you know, three and a half or something like that. It's it's good enough, but it's not great. Yeah, but I am enjoying it. And now I want to know what's going to happen next. I want to know what's going to happen because honestly, to me, the best way you can up the ante in a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil 
is not just to have the battle, you know, and not just to have one side it starts to lose and then they try harder. And so the other side starts to lose and then they try harder, you know, the, the wrestling type of, of thing or the Godzilla type of thing where Godzilla is losing and then he just decides, oh, I'm going to try harder now and I'm going to win. Uh, try harder is great and it's a great message for the youth of today, you know, but honestly, you know, what makes a conflict interesting is when you introduce a new element. And so with, you know, the all the trench battle from the first Star Wars movie where they're battling over the Death Star and what's the the element that comes in that, that's kind of a surprising element? Well, it's, it's Millennium Falcon. They win the battle because the Millennium Falcon returns with Han Solo and Chewbacca and they're able to get Darth Vader off of Luke's tail so Luke can take care of the business that needs to be done. And and from that point on, it's all just kind of, you know, it's that final roller coaster hill, you know, it's okay, we're almost there. And so for this, where you have the battle between Sergi X's Raiders and Han Solo's, uh, you know, band of, you know, ragtag band of warriors and the villagers. Now you add in this new element of this creature that has been summoned by one of the villagers. And <laughs> I just think, OK, this is the way this is the way to do it. And, you know, for me as a writer, uh, a comic book writer looking at this, I've made some of those show don't tell mistakes where, you know, I'll, I'll have something and it'll come back and, oh, well, we need to make sure we put in some dialogue or something there to make sure people know exactly what's going on there. The art itself should sell the story and tell the story. And in this, it doesn't. But they added in dialogue saying, hey, look at the old man over there that we can't even see. We don't even know he's there until they say, hey, look at him over there. But then uh, I'm also looking at this and thinking, OK, yeah, this is really a, a pretty good way to take what could be just a cliched battle, a rote battle between one side and another. And you throw in a third party. And it's not just a third party. It's a third party that you don't know what it's going to do. And is there going to be any reasoning with this thing? Doubtful. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a force of nature now. And that to me makes me say, okay, yes, the first story that they did way back in issue number seven, where they, you know, even had the the spacer that needed to be buried and, and Han and Chewie helped the, the, the alien guy to get the, the spacer to the, to the graveyard to, to bury him. That's ripped right out of Magnificent Seven. And it's pretty, it's almost too close. You know, it's not an homage anymore. That's a, that's a ripoff. But here we're breaking away from it. So you're taking this inspiration, but then breaking away from it, not just because, Oh, it's different because it's in space. No, it's different because now it's different. We're going to take the trope and we're going to turn it a little bit so you can maybe we're not turning it on its head completely, but we're turning it a little bit to make it a little bit more interesting. And yeah, uh, I mean, I don't have much more to say about this other than to say I am ready to read issue number 10. Ray Thomas, you have my attention. I like what you're doing. I know you're not going to last much longer, but so far so good and you know finally we are beyond the movie and i'm glad to go there with this one of the first one of if not the i can't remember timing wise how this falls with splinter of the mind's eye the novel 
that was written by Alan Dean Foster, who also did the novelization of that that first movie, and who's doing the novelization of the uh, the Force Awakens as well. They brought him brought him back for that, and I, I don't know how the timing works with those two things, but you know, between Splinter of the Mind's Eye and this story, those are the first, you know, from two different mediums, the first expansion of the universe. And so, yes, the first expansion of the universe on comic stands that kids are picking up is we went from the Death Star to the medal ceremony to Han Solo hanging out with a six foot rabbit. Sorry, a green six foot rabbit. But that's all for this segment about Star Wars. And I, again, want to thank you for listening. And this feed can be found on the comicbooktimemachine.com website, where you will also find the main feed where we talk about lots and lots of other comics. And until next time, thanks for listening, and Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, Man from Atlantis, issue number two.